Just to clarify for you guys who uh, weren't in the main services this weekend, wondering what in the world is all this talk about Pastor PJ leaving. Um, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, but I am planting a church um, in... Yep, in, uh, in North Texas in 2023, and Pastor Rod is coming as my associate pastor. So uh, I don't know if you guys were aware of that, but stoked for that for sure. Um, and uh, would be even more stoked if my phone would connect to ProPresenter in the back, but it's, uh, it's not. So uh, do we have a, a clicker? Do we have like an old school, hey, we can click and advance slides like they used to back in the olden days? Um, that'd be helpful if we do. All right. Thanks, Matt. How about Matt Bates, everybody? Hey, look at that. It, it works. Awesome. Uh, if I could get the slides up in the back, too, that'd be rad. That would make my night, even. You guys may not know the, Dean, the name Dean Karnazes, or maybe you do if you're an ultra runner or pay attention to that, but... Uh, he set out in 2005 on a Wednesday afternoon for a run and didn't stop until over 80 hours later, and he had uh, finished a 350-mile nonstop run around San Francisco in the Bay Area there. So you can imagine there's quite a few hills involved in that as well, but 350 miles nonstop on that run. Or there's a, another name. That, this is a, a woman whose name is Annette Fredskoff. Annette Fredskoff, she's uh, 41 years old, and at 41 years old, she set out to say, I want to run a marathon every single day for a year straight, 365 marathons, okay, 41 years old. Oh, by the way, she also has MS, multiple sclerosis, and so she said, I want to I do this, I want to show myself that I can do this, I want to show the world that I can do this, so she set out to run 365 marathons. Well, she didn't run 365 marathons because she ran two on the last day of that year, and she finished with 366 marathons in a calendar year. That's insane. Both of those things are insane. To say I'm going to run 350 miles nonstop, or I'm going to run 366 marathons across 365 days, they take feats of phenomenal endurance, physical endurance, mental endurance, right? We all, the Christian life is also a feat of endurance as well. Requires perseverance, sometimes even physically, but certainly spiritually, emotionally, mentally. The world in which we find ourselves is a world that is hostile to us as believers. And if we are going to follow Jesus, then what that's going to require of us is to make sure that we are in tune with what really matters and disciplining ourselves to stay the course no matter what. Our author in Hebrews has been talking so much in chapters 9 and then the first part of chapter 10 on the glories of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, that he died once for all and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, right? And that there's no longer any sacrificial system. You guys aren't showing up here on the weekends with your goats and your calves and bringing them to the high priest to slaughter them and, and, and sacrifice them for you. You're not doing that anymore. In fact, you're not on the outside with the, the court of the women or the, just the court of the Jews looking, in, trying to, to, to catch a glimpse of the inside, knowing that you can't get close to God. No, that's not true of you anymore because Jesus' death, Hebrews chapter 4, has opened the access for you to get to God, right? And he's been talking about all that, and, and like we talked about a couple weeks ago, he's now pivoting to the, to the so what, the application side of his sermon. 
in light of this glorious reality of the death of Christ, what does that mean for us? How should we be living our lives? And, and we're still in that section as we pick up our text together tonight. So pick up with me. I'm going to read the whole text that we're going to be, be preaching through, studying through, uh, beginning in verse 32 down through verse 39, Hebrews chapter 10. The author says, but, he's starting with a contrast. He had just been talking about the, the dangers of going on in sin after we've received a knowledge of the truth, right? And now he's contrasting. He's saying, look, instead of doing that, he said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to recall the former days when after you were enlightened or saved, you endured a, a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve <coughs> their souls. Verse 32, recall, remember. He's writing to this group. And again, context. We gotta get back into the, the shoes of the people that were originally receiving this letter from the author to the Hebrews who were tempted to go back tempted to try to avoid persecution, tempted to try to get away from the, the spotlight that had been put on Christianity at this time, and they didn't want to suffer anymore, and so they were thinking about, man, maybe we should just go back to Judaism, because the, the Jews often were given a, a special exemption from the Romans that Christians weren't given. And so the, the readers are sitting here going, well, maybe we should go back. And the author says, remember, remember, remember what? Remember the former days when after you were enlightened. Remember after you were saved, what it was like, what you went through, what you endured. The former days. In fact, there's four things specifically that he wanted them to remember. The first one, he says, remember when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Early on in your faith, he's telling them essentially, look, suffering's not new to you. Church, if you're surprised by this, I don't know why you're surprised by this. He's saying, remember the beginning when, when you were first saved, when you were early baby Christians and you endured suffering and affliction. You stuck it out. That idea of endure, enduring a hard struggle, it's it, an athletic metaphor. It's like you're standing there and you take the best blow from the opponent and you don't go down. There's this weird, I don't even know if you would call it a sport, but it's this slap fight. Have you ever seen this? The scariest thing are the women in that, dude. Like they, seriously. But some of these guys are just enormous. They're just tree trunks of a, of a human being. And they stand toe to toe. And the goal is to, to knock the other person down or knock them out by just open hand slapping them like this. It's fascinating to watch. And you know they're in trouble when the, the little guy winds up and, and swings and the big guy just doesn't even move. He just takes it, and it's not even like, if it was slow-mo, there wouldn't even be any rippling of the neck fat going on, if you know what I'm saying there. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not even affecting him at all. That's the idea here. Look, you, 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 when you were first saved, you took the blow from the world, and you endured. It didn't shake you. It didn't move you. You didn't run. You didn't turn. Now, what kind of struggle with sufferings was this? Well, we know from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, that our author is going to tell this group, 
hey, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. So we're not talking about anything that is, is uh, martyrdom at this point in time, but we are talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. And he's saying, remember, when you were first saved, you went through suffering, and yet you did not back down. The second thing he says, also remember, sometimes you were even publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Look, you were openly humiliated for being a Christian. This is not anything that was going on privately or in some, you know, closed-door sectors. No, this was, you were mocked openly by society, by the world, for your standing as somebody who is a, a believer in Jesus. A lot of these readers were probably exiled from their homes, the places that they had grown up. Some of them probably even abandoned by their own family members, turned aside by their own family members, exposed to the ridicule of being ostracized from their home and from their communities. He goes on, he says, and also I want you to remember that sometimes you were willing to even partner, not begin, but being should be what that read, reads being partners with those so treated. You were willing to, to identify with those that were suffering. If you weren't suffering yourself, man, you were at the, the, the prison cells visiting the people that were in jail. You were caring for their family members that were left behind. You were with them in all of this. And then finally, remember also, you even joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Plundering is a word in the Greek that means robbery or seizure. You lost things. Things that you once held dear and, and, and they're taken from you, whether that's home or possessions or, or clothes or your job, you lost your job, whatever it may be. And how did you do it, church? He says you did it with joy, joyfully. What a thought, what an idea, what a concept. I'm reminded of what took place not long ago up in Canada with Pastor James Coates, whose church was meeting because they believed that they should meet in spite of the, the government command that they couldn't gather together because of COVID restrictions. Well, Pastor Coates and his church said, no, we're going to gather together in obedience to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they did so. And the Canadian government came and cracked down on them, arrested their pastor, and then when that didn't work, they came and they put a fence up around their church and locked them out of their church. Well, eventually, Pastor Coates was released from prison, still couldn't get into his church. They had their church building plundered. And so you know what Pastor James and his church did? They went somewhere else, and they still worshiped the Lord together, just secretly in a remote region that nobody really knew where they were. That's what we're talking about here. He said, remember that. Remember when that was happening. You, verse 34, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. What would cause them to do that? What would produce this mindset? It's right there in the rest of verse 34. Since you knew, church, you yourselves knew that you had a better possession, an abiding one. You were willing to suffer, you were willing to be mocked and humiliated, you were willing to partner with those in prison, and you were willing to have everything just wrongfully taken from you, and you didn't put up a fight, in fact, you considered it a joy, because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. An abiding possession. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Right? Where, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. 
It says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For Jesus says, where your heart is, treasure is, rather there your heart will be also. An abiding possession, this abiding, lasting possession, it's not here. It's not something that you can come to and feel and touch and taste and see here on earth, but it's a, a possession that's theirs that is in, in the, the, the glories of heaven. And that possession has a name, and that name is Jesus. And he's saying, because you have that confidence in Christ, you were willing to say, take it all, right? We just sang it. If, if more of you means less of me, take everything. Did you mean that? Did you mean that? Because the author is asking the church the same thing. He's saying, hey, you remember this? When joyfully you turned everything over? Or maybe you remember from Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 41, when the disciples are arrested and they're imprisoned by the Jews, and then they are beaten and flogged for preaching the gospel, and then they're released afterwards. What does it say that the disciples did? That they went out doing what? Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They were rejoicing because their focus, their possession, their perspective was not here, but there. It was anchored not to the, their earthly circumstances, but to their heavenly future that they knew was secure. And so they were willing to face the suffering. They were willing to face the persecution. They were willing essentially to say, okay, Rome, Jews, bring it. Because they knew that this abiding, lasting possession that they had, this Jesus that was theirs, could never be touched by anything here. Pastor Mike will often talk to us about what is going to matter 100 years from now. I don't know if you've ever really entertained that, that question before. But it's a different way of, of asking the question, what, what's going to matter after you're gone, after you're dead? I, I just was, this weekend, I, I did a graveside for one of the members in our church here. And when we arrived at the, the cemetery, her casket was laid out there. And the people were gathered together and they were talking about how much she would love the fact that her casket had a really beachy tone to it. She doesn't care. She doesn't care about that. She has no idea what color her casket is right now. It's not her focus anymore. Because she's with Jesus, right? What's going to matter a hundred years from now? And think about the weight of that question, because really, unless the answer to that question is Jesus, it's not going to matter 100 years from now. And I, I'm, I'm talking about big picture, big ticket items. Your marriage isn't going to matter 100 years from now. Your kids, they're not going to matter to you 100 years from now. Your job Definitely not going to matter to you 100 years from now. What type of car you drive, that's not going to matter 100 years from now. What's going to matter 100 years from now is what really matters, which is Jesus. And we have to gain that perspective and gain that mindset if we're going to endure, if we're going to persevere, if we're going to last, if we're going to make it through this Christian life. We have to have this perspective, this mindset that says, what matters is Christ. What matters is this lasting, abiding possession that makes me say, I'll suffer. I'll face ridicule. I'll face reproach. I'll forfeit the, the possessions that have always held so dear. Take it all. Take everything. Why? Because I have a lasting and abiding possession, and that is Jesus. 
It's a perspective that doesn't come naturally, but it's a perspective that we as Christians must agree to embrace together if we're going to endure through this life. It's point number one tonight is this. Embrace an eternal perspective on life. Embrace an eternal perspective on life. I think the, the reason the author is calling them to remember the, the former days when they were brand new Christians, besides the fact that they were facing some of the same opposition that they were currently facing, is when we're new Christians, it's easier to have this eternal perspective on life. We're excited about this. We're on fire for Jesus. We're like, let, let me, yeah, let's go to the spectrum every day for a full year. Forget marathons. We're going to go witness to every single person. We're going to stand outside the movie theater and everybody that walks out, we're going to be like, have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Have you heard about Jesus? Are you going to heaven or hell tonight? If you were going to die tonight, where would you go? Right? We have this zeal. We have this passion because we're thinking eternally. Why? Because we just had our eternity transformed. And we feel the weight of that and we feel the joy of that and we feel the excitement about that and we want everybody else to feel that as well. But then what happens? Well, life happens. And we get back into our routines. And we kind of get a little bit slower with our evangelistic passion and zeal there. It's like, oh, well, oh, look, the Bible talks about there's a gift of evangelism. I probably don't have that. Shucks. And so he's saying, remember, because he wants us to re rekindle that first passion that we had, right? Uh, when Jesus is writing the letters to the churches in Revelation, the church at Ephesus, he indicts them. He says, you've got a problem. You know what your problem is, church? It's this problem. You've left your first love. That, that zeal that you had at, at first, the passion for Jesus and the love for other people, he's saying, you've left it. Church at Ephesus, doctrinally sound, right? We would feel comfortable in the church of Ephesus. We would agree with their doctrinal statement, uh, but they weren't loving Jesus the way that Jesus wanted them to love Jesus. So what was his prescription? Revelation 2, 5, remember. Remember. Remember where you used to be. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember the love that you had at first, the passion that you had at first. Remember what matters. Remember your abiding possession, right? Or Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. It's a similar situation with a different church this time. He says, remember. Remember where you've come from. Remember what you received and heard. What is that? Rhymes with schmospel starts with a G. Gospel. There you go. Right? Remember the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and keep it. Re bring back that passion. Bring back that first love for Jesus. Remember what matters. Embrace an eternal perspective on life. Ecclesiastes 5.15 puts it very, very, very starkly for us as the author indicts this pursuit of like everything, things, possessions, job, career, money, status, fame. He is about to cut it all out from under us. He says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Look, I, I watched five of my children come into the earth, and you know what? None of them did. They, did, they didn't bring us a, a thing. None of them came with anything, any gifts for Amanda and I. They didn't have anything to say, hey, thanks, Mom, for carrying me around. Hey, Dad, good to see you. Here's a host gift for hosting me for the next 18 years. And see, that's the thing. As we came into the world, so we will leave the world, is what he's saying. So he's saying, remember what matters, and it's not things. It's not possessions. Paul puts it differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, who sees anything different in you? 
He says, what do you have that you did not receive? What, what are you able to boast in? He says, if you received everything that you have, which is true, then why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Right, having that right perspective on what we have and not living for possessions, not living for a status, not living for a, a place that we want to be or a role that we want to have or an identity that we think we, we need to embrace, not living for any of that, but living for what matters, which is Jesus. The living and abiding possession that we have. It's a hard thing to do, admittedly. It's also a hard thing to do for you specifically because you feel like you've got so much life in front of you to live. But it's worth the discipline to keep this pursuit for a few reasons. Here's what an eternal perspective will do for you. An eternal perspective, first off, is going to keep you humble. And if, if we remember, again, what the writer of Ecclesiastes, what King Solomon says time and time again, that our life is a vapor, it's a mist that's here and then gone. If we will remember that, if we will remember that our life is a breath and that we have such a small part to play in, in redemptive history, it will keep us humble. Second thing it's going to do is it's going to keep you even keeled. If you have an eternal mindset, man, you are not going to be rocked to and fro by the temporal things that happen to you. You're not going to be shaken to your core. You're going to find yourself far less anxious if you embrace an eternal mindset that says, I've got a God who's sovereign over all of this, and I know what really matters is that one day I'm going to be with him for all of eternity. It also keeps you flexible. It keeps you flexible. That, that phrase that we have around here at Compass, out of pat, anything, any place, any time. If I have an eternal mindset... And I think to myself, okay, I'm here for 70, maybe 80 years if God is gracious to me as far as just living a, a full life here. What am I going to do with that that's going to matter? What am I going to do with that life that's, that's going to please him? Because that's what ultimately matters. And so I'm going to be flexible versus if I'm thinking, man, I've only got 80 years here and I need to make the most of this life here because this is all I got. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, eat, drink, and be merry if that's your conclusion but realize it's not going to satisfy you. It never will. And so it helps to keep us flexible. It also keeps you generous. When you're living with an eternal mindset, thinking about your abiding and eternal possession, which is Jesus, guess what's not abiding and eternal? Everything else. So you're going to be generous with your time. You're going to be generous with your finances. You're going to be generous with your family's time. You're going to be generous with your career choice. You're going to be generous in serving the church because you're going to have the right perspective. It also keeps you ready to suffer and endure. An eternal perspective keeps you mindful that what Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory. If we don't have an eternal mindset, then whatever we suffer is not going to feel light and momentary to us. The only thing that will make your suffering and your trials feel light and momentary is when you have this mindset that says, man, there's something that is abiding that's much better than this that no amount of suffering on this earth can ever take away from me, and that is the fact that I will be with my Savior one day. And then finally, it keeps you confident in the Lord. 
keeps you confident in the Lord. And that's where our writer goes in verse 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, your confidence which has great reward. Don't choose the here and now and and lose your confidence in the there and then. He's saying, church, if you're going to compromise in order to be comfortable, then you can't expect to have any sort of confidence in what's coming for you in eternity. So often, something that we forfeit before we forfeit anything else when it comes to our sin in our lives is we forfeit a security and a confidence in our standing with Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting, Christian, that you can become somebody who is not saved, but your confidence in your relationship with Jesus, if you are giving yourself over to sin, is going to suffer. But if you have this eternal mindset that says, I'm going to identify with Jesus no matter what happens, I'm going to choose to follow Jesus no matter what happens, and Jesus is my abiding possession, no matter what happens, then you will have a confidence which will result in a great reward. Hear me, though, this is not an easy mindset to embrace. It's not easy to embrace an eternal perspective. If it was, we wouldn't have to have reminders like this. Look, when I think about my family, right, my wife, my kids, when I think about, you know, my health and my longevity here when it comes to my family, I, I don't want to give up any of them. But at the same time, my perspective has to be so grounded in the abiding and better possession. Notice that language. Abiding and better possession. I have to be so convinced that Jesus is better that no matter what would happen, including the loss of my family even, I would not be completely undone because my relationship with Jesus would not be taken away from me. It's not an easy perspective to have, but it's necessary if we're going to endure. Which is where the author goes next in verse 36. He says, look, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. Revelation, book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 25 Again, he's right into these churches and he's delivering a similar message to them. He says, hold fast, Revelation 2.25. Hold fast, endure. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Revelation 3.10-11, he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death is the call there. Our author says you have need of endurance. Patient endurance is a hallmark of the Christian life, and that should not come as a surprise as we've studied Hebrews to this point. Quick survey in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. The author is saying, don't drift, endure, stay the course, Hebrews 2.1. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews 3.12, he's saying, don't, don't fall away from the living God, endure, remain steadfast. 
Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our confidence firm to the end. See, those who are in Christ are going to endure. They're going to hold their confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. Don't fail to reach the rest. Endure, persevere, keep going. Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Make sure no one falls. Strive to enter that rest. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up. Don't let go. Don't let your confession slip. Hold fast that confession. Endure. Persevere in your faith. Hebrews 6, 1 through 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. There he's saying, don't be stagnant in your faith, but let's press on, let's endure, let's grow in our faith. Hebrews 6, 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Endure, persevere to have the same hope until the end, he's calling us. One more, Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, and let our hearts be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Again, the call to endure. Hold fast without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so it should come as no surprise when our author then very plainly in verse 36 of chapter 10 says, you need to endure. Remember, remember, he's, he's just called them. Remember, remember, the fifth and remember. He's just called them to recall the early days of their faith when they were enduring so well. And now they're wavering. And he's saying, you need to endure. You need patient endurance. Remember your zeal for Christ. Recapture the zeal for Christ. Double down on your resolve to trust in Jesus, to trust in God. Point number two tonight is this. Patiently trust God's word and his promises. Patiently trust God's word and his promises. We're, we're good with the, the, first, the second part of that. Trust God's word and his promises. If that was the point, it'd be like, sweet. I'm going to trust God's word and his promises according to my timeline. No. Patiently trust God's word and God's promises. Have you ever noticed that we don't really need patience when the waiting is easy? And when things are going well? That's why it's such a dangerous prayer to pray that God will make you a more patient person. Because you're going to need adversity to become a more patient person. Case in point, let me illustrate this. Most of you in this room have probably been to Disneyland and regressed in your sanctification along the way. (laughs) But if you've been to Disneyland on a super hot day, you know what ride is one of the best rides ever in Disneyland on a super hot day? No, you guys all fail. No, it's a small world because it's slow and it's air conditioned. 
And when you get old, you will know what I'm talking about. You'll be like, dude, Pastor PJ was so right. Yeah, when it's a hot day at Disneyland, you get on that tiny little creepy boat and, and go through with all those weird looking dolls that are staring at you. You don't care. And that stupid song plays for like 10 minutes and you're like, play it again. Let's go around again. Because it's so blazing hot outside and it's air conditioned inside. You don't need patience there. Any other time of the year, that is the most patient producing ride you will ever be on on the face of the planet. When your kids are like, hey, can we go on It's a Small World? And you're like, okay, fine. And then it just, it's the earworm and it's stuck in the, your head for the rest of the day. It's a small world and you're welcome because now it's stuck in your head too. Yeah, then you got to be patient because it's not easy. It's harder. Yeah, the times that we need patience are the times that we face opposition and trials when we're not comfortable. But those are the times that produce endurance in us, right? That's what James says, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is going to produce patient endurance within you? What is going to produce steadfastness, as James says, in you? Trials and opposition. This world is going to give you plenty of trials and opposition. It gave our Savior plenty of trials and opposition. In fact, the most intense of those came as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to listen to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. You can turn there if you'd like to. But I want to read for you the example that we have from Jesus of patient endurance in the face of trial. It says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Patient endurance. Staring down the barrel of the cross knowing full well what was coming his way, enduring sorrow to the point of death in the garden. And a lot of times we think of Jesus praying that in the garden, Father, if this be your will, let, let there be any other way, but not my will, but your will be done. But how many times does Matthew say that Jesus did that and prayed that? Three times. The intensity of the Savior suffering in the face of opposition and trial. And he, he doesn't throw a hissy fit about his circumstances. 
He doesn't stomp his feet and say, God, this isn't fair. Why me? If anyone had an opportunity to say, hey, this is not fair. It's he whom God made to be sin who knew no sin. He doesn't do it. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Your will, Father, be done in my life. That's the mantra of a Christian who's willing to patiently endure in the face of trials and tribulations and suffering. Not my will, but your will be done. Patience, right? It's a, a part of the fruit of the Spirit, yes? Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience. Oh, man, I wish that one wasn't there. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Patience is to be expected in the life of a believer, which means opposition is to be expected in the life of a believer. Hebrews 6.12, back in our book, it says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's saying, look, we need to imitate those faithful believers who through patient endurance now inherit the promises of eternal life with God. Patient endurance should be characteristic of every follower of Jesus. But I want you to notice in the text that the patient endurance that we are called to, church, is not passive. It's not this like, well, you got your Christianity members only jacket, so just throw it on and kick your feet up and wait for Jesus to come back and be patient in the meantime. It's not like that, right? Again, Jesus' example, not what I will, but your will be done. Be done where? Where, where should it be done? How should it be done? As we live it out. In fact, that's what our text says, right? You have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when what? When you have, when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. See, our patient endurance is an active patience. It's not like when I was growing up and, and my mom would take me to the mall, it was the most boring thing ever. She'd go into the department stores and like shop for clothes and I was an only child so I didn't have siblings to mess around with or play with and I was a spoiled little brat as an only child, okay? I was the typical only child and God saved me from that and he's still working it out. It's a, it's a me and Jesus kind of thing right now. But I, would, I was a punk kid. You know what I would do? I would go find those like circular clothing racks. I'd get inside one and hide. Be like, I'll show you mom. You want to be I'm just going to sit right here and wait until you freak out. And you're like, where is my son? I lost my only child. I don't know where he went, and he, now he's gone. And I'd be chilling inside the clothes. I'd know what's going on the whole time. And then I'd jump out and be like, huh, Mom, I was in the clothes the whole time. Look, that's not the type of patience that we're called to have, obviously. No, we've been given an assignment by the Lord. We're not waiting on Jesus to finish up his shopping up in heaven to come back and get us so that we can go do something more fun. No, we are, we are laborers for the Lord, called to be doing his will, right? Matthew chapter 25, in the parable of the talents, you remember uh, these three men are given talents by the, the, the owner of the, the property, and then he goes away. And what does he expect these three to be doing with those talents, that money that he's entrusted to them? He expects them to be using it, working it, returning an investment on that money. And he comes back and he calls to account, and the first one comes forward and says, Here's the money that I made on the, the, your investment in me. And the master says, that's awesome. 
enter into the joy of your master. Well done, good and faithful servant. The, the next one comes up. He's like, well, you gave me less, but I still, here's what I did. The master says, this is awesome. Third one comes up. He's like, ah, e, mm, yeah, see, I knew that you were um, a, a wicked and, and harsh master. And so I was terrified. I didn't want to mess up and invest this in a bad deal. So I just buried it. But here it is. You get it back. Are you happy? And he says, no, I'm not happy because that's not what the point was. It's the wrong kind of patient endurance. You were supposed to be busy doing something with this while you were waiting for me to return. Church, that's us. What are we supposed to be busy doing? We're supposed to be dealing, busy doing the will of God. Like when we left my house earlier this evening and told my oldest to, hey, when we get back, the dishes need to be done and the twins need to be in bed. Guess what? If we come back and the dishes aren't done and the twins are still awake, it's not going to be a good night for Josh and Annie. All right? We expect that they will be doing our will while we're gone. Yeah, they're going to be patiently waiting for us to come back home, but they know that they've got an assignment to do before we get back home. Church, we have something to be doing while we wait for Christ to come back for us. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And that's the carrot at the end of the stick. The, the, the offer or, or the Snickers bar, if you don't like carrots, right? It's, here's the benefit, and that is there's a reward. You may receive what is promised. From the one who is faithful, right? The psalmist, Psalm 1611, says this. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. Sign me up. I want some of that. Yes, please. I want pleasures forevermore as God has designed those and prepared those. And then you know what else the psalmist says in Psalm 1611? In your presence, God, is fullness of joy. Guess what? None of y'all have ever experienced before. Fullness of joy. You know why? Because it's only found in the presence of God. You want to be there? I want to be there. We're not going to find it here. We need to patiently endure awaiting for that day and, and doing the will of God so that when we are finally called to be with the Lord, we will receive that promised reward, which is the fullness of joy. Well, are you suggesting that we earn our salvation? No, I'm not suggesting that you work for your salvation. I'm suggesting that your salvation works, right? And there's a difference there. That if we're saved, we're going to be patiently enduring while doing the will of God so that we will receive what is promised. So he's looking again at this church that's tempted to abandon and go back to Judaism going, what are you thinking? Stop that. Don't do that. Remember the former days when you were enduring through suffering. And oh, by the way, right now you got to double down and patiently endure as you trust God's word and his promises. And then he's going to move into the rest of our text. Look at verse 37, four, yet a little while in the coming one will come. And will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Jesus now, or the writer now comes to the final piece of his argument, which is this reminder that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and not delay. See, even my kids don't have that same guarantee about Amanda and I coming back tonight. We had a, a babysitter who was putting them to bed at one point, and they were missing Amanda and I. We were out on a date night or whatever, and the babysitter's putting them to bed, and, and my kids are like, we miss mommy and daddy. Are they going to be home later tonight? And she goes, well, yeah, God willing, unless they get in a car accident and die. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's true. However, maybe don't share that with the four-year-olds. No, but in all reality, 
their guarantee of Amanda and I coming home safely tonight is far less than your guarantee that Jesus is going to come back. Because there's nothing that could ever stop that. This quote is actually from uh, the book of Habakkuk, which all of y'all knew because that's your favorite book in the Old Testament. It is really an awesome book. You should read it if you haven't. Or if you've only read it in the DVR and you're tired by that time because it's like November, then go back and read it without being tired. But in Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4, it says this. It says, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous one shall live by his faith. You think, well, that doesn't necessarily sound like the passage that we just read exactly. Well, it's because it's a quote from the Septuagint of that. And here's what the Septuagint version of that reads, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It says, because there's still a vision for the time, and he will appear at an end, and not in vain. If he is late, wait for him, because one coming will be present, and he will not tarry. He will not delay. If he draws back, my life does not find pleasure in it, but the righteous one shall live by faith. Well, that sounds a little bit more like what we find in Hebrews. And the reason is, is because the New Testament authors more often quoted from the Septuagint than they did from the Hebrew Bible. And so they're quoting from this, and they're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, applying this text, which originally had to do with justice that God was working through the destruction of, of Israel, the, the exile of Israel in, in Babylon, and all these things. The writer of Hebrews is now applying that to, to Jesus, saying, look, if you think that Jesus is, is delaying and coming back, wait, he's coming. Don't worry, he will be back. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 this is right after the ascension of Jesus, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the disciples hear that charge. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then when he had said these things, verse 9, as they were looking on, he's lifted up and a cloud takes him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, right, just slack jawed, like what just happened? And they didn't have cameras, to, camera phones to pull out and be like, did anybody get that? Did, no, nobody got that. They're just amazed because Jesus is now not there anymore wondering what to do. Well, now the angels show up. The two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, what does it say there? Will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back, right? He ascends and these angels show up to his disciples and say, what are you doing? Why are you just standing there? You've got work to be doing. You've got to go be doing his will. You've got an assignment. Don't just stand here looking up at the clouds anymore. People are going to start to wonder about you. Get busy. Get after it. He's coming back. Don't worry about that. He's coming back. You get after what you need to be doing right now. Yeah, the return of Christ. It's what we call imminent. What that means is it could happen at any moment in any time. And a lot of times, and sometimes it's the flair of the dramatic and everything else like that. It doesn't need to be, but a preacher will say, he could come back before I finish preaching this sermon. He could come back before I finish preaching this sermon. I mean, we don't know, right? He could come back for his bride at any moment. In fact, that's the, the point of Matthew chapter 24, verses 43 through 44 right here. It says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be what? What does it say? Be, be ready. Yes, be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You need to be ready for his return. Again, the parable of the talents. The guy who buried the, the one talent was not ready. 
He says, my righteous one shall live by faith. The connection there is what? Well, as you begin to, to, to question and doubt and, and begin to wonder, okay, is he really coming back? Is he really coming back? Where, where has he been? It's been 2,000 years. Is he, is he coming back? He's saying the righteous one lives by what? Faith. Faith in what? The promise of God that Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. And our task while, while we wait is to be patient and endure while doing the will of God. Living by faith in the promise that Jesus will return. Y'all, the opposition in this world is going to cause those doubts to creep in with your, your minds. To question, okay, is Jesus really coming back? I mean, in John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, but is that really true? Is he going to come back to bring me to be where he is? The writer of Hebrews says, yes, the righteous one is going to live by faith in those promises. Our final point is this trust that Jesus will return. The second point was patiently trust God's word and his promises. That's just in living out the will of God that we are called to do, right? That, that he has laid out his will for us in his word. I'm going to trust that his word is true and I'm going to carry that out. I'm going to obey that, right? Now, I'm, I'm calling on us to trust the, the promise that he specifically is going to come back, that Jesus will return. Again, the writer of Hebrews is writing in this whole passage to this group that's tempted to go back to Judaism. He's just finished talking about the glorious reality of the sacrifice of Jesus for us, that we are forgiven once and for all. Now he's applying that truth to our lives. And he's saying to us, look, we need to remember the original zeal that we had and, and, and make sure that we're not wavering, right? We need to, to, to double down in our commitment there, remember what matters, have that eternal perspective. And then he says from there, and, and then you need to, to think about the the. the the task that you've been given as you patiently endure. Yes, have the eternal perspective. In the meantime, what do you do right now in the temporal? You endure patiently while obeying the will of God. And then he, he's landing his plane here in this passage saying, because guess what? Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back. Trust that Jesus will return. Y'all, if that's true, I don't think there's a more sanctifying thought in the, in the, the world. I don't think there's anything more sanctifying than the thought that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back at any moment. For us to ask and to think, would I be okay if Jesus returned with me doing, thinking, saying what I'm doing, thinking, or saying right now? In fact, we were in the first part of this passage, but here's more from Matthew chapter 24 from Jesus. Therefore, you all must also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whose master is set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Who is the one that, that, that is going to be pleasing to Jesus when he comes back? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he returns. What is Jesus going to find you doing when he comes back? Right, that's a, a sanctifying thought. If he could come back at any moment, what will I be found doing? Think about your past week. How much of the last week that you lived would you be comfortable with Jesus coming back in those moments? He says, look, if he shrinks back at his coming, he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. There are going to be those that, those that are self-deceived, especially, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be revealed where their true heart is, and they're going to see him coming and not, not be excited about that. They're going to be terrified about that. They're going to shrink back in shame. And the writer says, Jesus is going to have no pleasure in that person. And I don't want to be doing anything that I would shrink from my Savior in shame when he returns. 
And that's why in verse 39, he says, look, if you're in Christ, the, the hope that you have, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Trust that Jesus will return. What does it look like to live ready for that return? A, a few things. Number one, live obediently. It sounds simple, sounds basic, right? But it's true. Live obediently. Obedient to what? Obedient to who? Obedient to God, obedient to his word. There's a doctrine called the perspicuity of scripture. Here's what that means. It means that you can understand the Bible. Why in the world did they call it that? I don't know. I didn't decide on it, but that's what it means. It means you can understand the Bible. And here's what that means, that if you can understand the Bible, you are called to obey the Bible. So live obediently. Fight sin. Fight it. I'm not asking you to be perfect because I know you're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. But I am asking you to fight sin. Not to coddle it, not to hide it, not to cloak it, not to redefine it. Not to excuse it, not to rationalize it, but to fight it. Pursue Jesus. What does that mean? It means pursue a relationship with Christ. Not just a religion of Christianity here, right? But, but want the relationship with a living Savior. Fill your life with more of those things that stir your affections for Jesus. It cause you to love Jesus more. Things that rob you of your affections for Jesus, get those things out of your life. Love Jesus, y'all. Love Jesus. And then remember what matters. Some of y'all get so worked up over things, and, and sometimes, just to be honest, y'all, and this, a lot of this comes with the perspective of age, but sometimes it's, it's like we sit back and we go, really? Just breathe for a second. You'll be okay. And I say that I was there, okay? I went through the, the emotional college times too and being like, this is the most important thing in the world. Guess what? It's not. And guess what? There's 60-year-olds looking at me going, that young buck thinks that it's the most important thing in the world, and it's not. Right, so it's just different phases of life. But remember what matters. Remember what matters. Second Peter 3 11 through 14, Peter's dealing with those that are questioning, is Jesus really going to come back? Is he really going to come back? Where is he? He says, uh, yeah, yeah, he is. He's going to come back. And then he says this, and oh, by the way, in case you're wondering what that should mean for you, he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, the world in which we live, talk about what matters, right? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, patiently enduring, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. There it is. What should I be doing while I wait for Jesus? Right there. If you camp out there for the rest of your life, God's going to be happy. When Jesus comes back, you're not going to have to worry, am I doing what he wants me to do? You know, it's going to be, yep. Yeah, but he is coming back. You know, living as a Christian in this world requires a, an endurance, a disciplined endurance that does not come naturally. It requires work. Nothing that requires discipline does come naturally. It's the whole point of discipline, Right? 
But our author has reminded us that in light of Jesus' death and his ongoing intercession for us, that we need a perspective shift on this world while we patiently wait for his return, obediently following his word, knowing that he could honestly, truly return at any moment. And we have to be ready. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that reality that Jesus is coming back. And we just pray that you would impress upon our hearts more of the urgency of that truth, that he really could come back at any time, at, at, at any moment, and we need to be ready for that. God, I pray that we would be a church who is truly full of people who are ready, not just ready, but eager for the return of Jesus, looking forward to the return of Jesus, longing for the return of Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would think much about what we do think and say and ask ourselves over and over again, would I be okay doing, thinking, saying this if Jesus were to come back right now? God, sanctify us. Make us a people that are holy. As we wait for Christ to come back, God, make it clear what our mission is, that you've given us a mission to do your will. And certainly as a church, one of the key factors of that is that we need to be ambassadors for Jesus. We need to be pleading with, imploring those that don't know Christ to be reconciled to him before it is too late. So let us be found faithful in that. God, let us be an unstained bride for Christ as well. Keep us from dabbling in the, the world's sins that they hold out to us and promise things that, that are just shell games. That there is no true, lasting, significant satisfaction, fulfillment in sin. It's just this constant beckoning without ever satisfying. And God, I pray that we would see that reality and that we would fight sin and rid our lives of sin as much as we possibly can as we strive to do your will all at the same time. And God, we are certainly, truly thankful for the relationship that we have with you through Jesus. A relationship that redefines what really does matter, that gives us a perspective that will allow us to think not just in terms of tomorrow or next week or next month, but all of eternity and how that can totally transform our lives and give us hope in the face of opposition and allow us to persevere and endure in the face of trials and tribulations until Christ comes back and we get to see him face to face. Hasten that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.